You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello everyone and welcome. The History of the Great War, Episode 97 After the July 2nd attacks were over on the Somme, there were more planned, and they would happen very soon. But the British did need a few days to catch their breath and put some things in order. And for the next two weeks, they would be launching attacks that would try to keep the Germans off balance. This would all be in preparation for the next big push on July 14th, which we will not get to until next episode. The attacks between July 3rd and July 13th would have two stated purposes. The first being, as I mentioned, to keep the Germans off balance. And the second, to try and capture a few important little areas that would be very advantageous to have in British hands before the next big attack. While some of these objectives would be met, they would come at a high cost, perhaps too high of a cost. I think these attacks are pretty interesting because they often get forgotten. There's tens of thousands of casualties, but a lot of times all you hear about is July 1st and then July 14th. The attacks would resume on July 3rd, and on that day there would be plans for two different attacks with two different objectives in mind. One attack would be towards the village of Oliver, and the other would be in the direction of Thiepville both of which were right to the north of where the British had made their progress on July 1st. These were seen strictly as pressure and distraction attacks, the good old just-keep-pressure-on-them sort of attacks. And in general, I'm not sure that there was a huge amount of hope that they would succeed in actually capturing their objectives. If these attacks could even sort of be successful, though, it would keep the Germans very much off balance in preparation for the real attacks that would be launched later to their south. The men at the front were the 12th and 32nd Division, and the men themselves certainly did not have high hopes for what was about to happen, which of course did not stop them from going over to the attack at 3 a.m. on July 3rd. This was a much earlier kickoff time when compared to earlier attacks, because the British did not have to attack in conjunction with the French, who were constantly pushing for later attack times, while the British always wanted to attack even before the sun started to come up. With a few days to recover, the Germans had taken the time to compose themselves, both the men at the front lines and the officers behind the front. 
For the infantry in the line, this probably meant trying to get some food and maybe a little bit of rest. And for the officers, it meant writing orders to those men who really just wanted to sleep and eat and didn't want to be bothered. Most of these were just general directives that were set down to the units with the intent of both telling the men how important the fighting was, but also what was expected of them in the future when more attacks came. I have two different translations of the same order here, one from German Army on the Somme by Jack Sheldon, and the other from Through German Eyes, The British and the Somme by Christopher Duffy. Now, I don't usually do things like this, but I wanted to include two different translations here, just to show you an example of how much slightly different wording and slightly different cuttings of translations can change what you see. I find this kind of stuff quite interesting, but do not yet know enough German to give my own take, so I guess I give these two quotes without real comment. We start first with the translation from Through German Eyes. Quote, on the victory of Second Army on the Somme hangs the outcome of the war. The battle must be won by us, despite the momentary superiority of the enemy in artillery and infantry. For now, everything depends on holding on to our current positions at all costs, and on improving them with small counterattacks. I forbid the voluntary evacuation of positions. Only over corpses may the enemy find his way forward. And then, this is the same section of that same order from the German army on the Somme. Quote, The outcome of the war depends on Second Army being victorious on the Somme. Despite the current enemy superiority in artillery and infantry, we have got to win this battle. For the time being, we must hold on to our current positions without fail, and improve on them by means of minor counterattacks. I forbid the voluntary relinquishment of positions, the enemy must be made to pick his way forward over corpses. End quote. So I don't think either of those quotes really convey a greatly different meaning, but I think it's cool to see how much wording can change, even when translating from the same source, and when the authors seem to have the same authorial uh, intention. Uh, when those things are different, when the authors are trying to prove two different things with the same translation, you can get some pretty different results while still being technically accurate, since most of the time languages uh, don't directly translate. So it's just something to keep in mind uh, while you're reading yourself. The first attack to go forward would be the attack near Oliver, and it would be preceded by only an hour of artillery fire. It would go forward, it would be costly, and it would be very unsuccessful. After the attacks, nothing had been gained, and there had been 2,400 casualties. The attack on Thietville was much the same, if maybe of little worse, and again the infantry were pretty much slaughtered for no gain. The problem for both of these efforts was that the preparations were simply not sufficient to even achieve their easier goals of distracting the Germans from future attacks. The paltry artillery preparation was the biggest culprit for this, the bombardment was much shorter than before, before July 1st, but did not have a greatly larger number of guns behind it. There also was just simply not enough men put behind the attack on a wide enough front to keep it from being anything other than a fruitless effort. The only benefit of these attacks was that they were smaller than the attacks on July 1st, though they still cost a lot of casualties, and the British did also learn that the Germans had abandoned a few places on July 2nd, which was a happy accident. 
This allowed them to occupy places like Bernafe wood or Caterpillar wood, which did move the line forward a bit, but that was all due to the Germans voluntarily giving them up, not due to some amazing attack by the British. One facet of the attacks on both July 3rd and the continuing efforts that we are about to discuss is how generally unsettled the lines were. So many of the men on both sides were still stuck in unprepared or barely prepared positions that had often been wrecked by all the artillery fire, or they were simply in shell holes that had been created by that artillery fire. This put them in a situation where there was often no easy way to communicate with units on the flanks or even to the rear, let alone try and have some sort of continuous line. The latter situation, though, where it was so difficult to communicate with the rear, was usually handled by communication trenches when they had time to make them, and they just didn't really exist in this case. This produced a few big problems. The biggest was water. Always it was water. Remember, this is the summer um, in northern France. Often men were forced to resort to trying to rummage through among the dead bodies for canteens and water bottles that still had something in them. And this may have been a source of these items soon after the attack uh, went forward, but as the days wore on, they were no longer providing any amount of food or water. Captain Clausen, a German officer, went into pretty good detail while describing the experiences of both him and his men as they moved to the front around this time. They would spend five days and nights in the front line before they were to be relieved, and the first trial was simply to get to the front, which meant rushing from cover to cover as British artillery dropped fire at various intervals all around them. Clausen would use the term that the air was full of iron to describe the situation, and this was just on the way to their destination. They hadn't even gotten there yet. Once they arrived at the front, they found themselves under constant fire from both infantry and artillery, which was annoying for sure. Both of those were very annoying, but sort of expected. But more importantly, ration parties almost never got through to the front lines. He says that one time in those five days did any ration carriers get to his troops, which seems pretty typical from what I've read. The men were almost entirely reliant on what they had brought with them, which was almost never enough. The only good news, if it really was at all, is that when the troops came off the line, there was almost always plenty of food. It was always the goal of both German and British rear area officers to try and provide a good billet and plenty of hot food for units that were coming out of the front line. It was huge for morale that this happened. In early July, there was often more than anybody could possibly ever eat, because the units were coming off the line so much smaller than the ones that had left those billets a few days earlier. Some of these units were getting off the line for the first time since the attacks, and this was on July 3rd or 4th, and it was not unheard of for them to have lost three quarters of their nominal strength in the week of fighting that they had experienced. They were often, there were often more than enough potatoes and other food to go around, even though the men were extremely hungry. The next phase of the Battle of the Somme would sort of bridge the gap between the attacks of the first few days of July and the next large effort on July 14th, which we will be getting to next episode, as I mentioned. The goal was to keep pressure on the Germans while the next attack was being prepared, and there would also, of course, be some goals of different areas that could be taken. 
These goals were specific objectives along the front that if captured would again greatly assist in future efforts. If you've been paying attention so far, you may recognize some of these objectives, and they were Oliver, Contramasson, and Mamet's Wood. These were sort of in the middle of the front that had been attacked on July 1st, and it was hoped that their capture would unlock the entire southern end of the British front for the next attack. This goal and the hoped-for outcome were reasonable. These were objectives that needed to be captured, and if it could be done before the attack, then they would not need to be captured during that attack, and they could, you know, start at a further starting point. Unfortunately, the approach that the British, and more specifically Rawlinson, chose for these attacks was far from optimal. The problem was that Rawlinson believed that his subordinates should be allowed to plan and execute their own attacks. He thought that he should simply tell them the objectives and roughly when it should happen, and they would be in charge of actually how it happened. This was all fine and good. Delegating is a great skill, and he had many skilled corps and divisional commanders to hand this control over to. However, by giving them the amount of control that he did, he forfeited the ability to properly coordinate all of the attacks so that they would happen at the same time. This meant that when one corps or division would attack, it would be completely unsupported by the troops on its flanks. What would end up happening was that the division to the left or right would have launched their attack the day before, or maybe were planning on doing it the day after, or maybe even both. Heck, maybe the troops on the flanks had went forward in the morning instead of in the afternoon. All of these things definitely happened. For example, the 3rd Corps and the 15th Corps were side by side in the line. During the same 5-day span, the 3rd Corps launched 8 attacks, the 15th launched 11. Both of these meant that they were both launching attacks more than one time per day. However, none of these combined 19 attacks happened at the same time, and actually, they never even supported each other. Anytime one group attacked, most of the men were just sitting around and watching as they went forward. This allowed the German infantry and machine guns to bring fire to bear on their flanks, and it also allowed the German artillery to focus all their fire on this small piece of front at a time. This allowed the still outnumbered Germans to deliver a volume of devastating fire onto each attack in succession, something that they would not have been able to do if everything was unleashed by the British at the same time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. 
I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. We will be covering these attacks during these 10 days or so, as they happened in geographical order from north to south, starting with the attacks against Oliver. In general, the British troops in this area had quite a ways to go forward to reach the Germans in their attack. In some areas, the lines were up to 250 yards apart, which is one hell of a long way to go, as I feel like we've discussed many times now. They would also find themselves under a lot of fire, especially as they got closer and closer to their objective. There had not been a lot of changes to the general situation of attacking infantry since July 1st, And because of this, the men who were going forward were pretty much carrying the same thing as before, although I guess I do not remember them carrying quite as many bombs as described by Sergeant Charles Quinnell, who would write before his attack about what he was taking with him. Quote, the objective was 250 yards away. Every man had a sandbag with 20 Mills bombs in it, and each Mills bomb weighs 2 pounds, so that's 40 pounds of weight. We had two extra bandoliers of 50 rounds, in addition to our 150 rounds in our pouches. Every alternate man had a shovel or pick. The bombardment started at 4.15, and at 8.15 we were to go over. A four-hours bombardment. As soon as the bombardment started, the Germans' retaliation came, and for four hours we had to sit there and take everything that he slung at us. We lost 25% of our men before we even went over. There were some high spirits among the troops before the attack, although everybody knew that they were in serious danger and that many of them would not survive. Here is Lieutenant Lionel Ferguson. Quote, I had a few old hands round me, as I was taking a platoon over, and they kept me cheery. One man in particular was fine, keeping us all laughing by his wit. We gave out a good rum ration at 7.30, and it did us a power of good. The waiting to go over is most unnerving work. I kept calling out the time. Five, four, three, two, one more minute to go. Over the top and best of luck. End quote. Unfortunately, all of this optimism would not translate into very good results due to the fact that the German defenders were very prepared for the attacks. The German artillery would begin firing even before the British attacks began, as Captain Henry Sadler would explain when discussing one of the attacks that he was involved in. Quote, We were badly shelled for about two hours before zero by the guns that practically infiltrated the trench from the north, which was our left. We actually lost more men then, I think, than getting across no man's land. So here you can see the devastating effects of these artillery barrages right before an attack when so many men were at the front waiting to go forward. When the attacks got going, the fire from the flanks was so severe, both from machine guns and infantry, that casualties were extremely high. 
However, perseverance was something that the British had in spades, and this allowed them to, after many, many attacks, capture and hold onto two lines of German trenches, which did not get them all the way to their objective, but was still pretty good, given the situation. To the south of the attacks at Oliver, the 17th and 23rd Divisions would move against Contramassan, and here the attacks would go similar to what happened at Oliver, which is to say a lot of attacks, not a whole lot of gains, but a lot of casualties. One interesting phenomenon that you see happening during all of these attacks, during these two weeks in July, and also, I guess, in other times, but here is a good example, was there was a good amount of confusion on the British side, especially when it came to precisely who was launching attacks, when they were launching them, and where. As I mentioned earlier, in some areas of the front, there were multiple attacks being launched for every day, and multiple days on end, and multiple units involved at various times, and this situation made communication between units and the officers in the rear extremely important. This also meant that when communications broke down, disaster could strike almost instantly. And this is exactly what happened to the Rifle Brigade of the 13th Battalion. This unit was supposed to participate in an attack on July 10th. There was one thing different about this attack, though. It had been cancelled. The news of this cancellation had gotten to the artillery and to the units to the left and the right of the Rifle Brigade. There was just one problem. It didn't get to them in time. The colonel commanding the unit had gotten the message, but too late, and there was no way to get the cancellation to the front line in time, even though runners were sent for that very purpose. Because of this, when the time came for the attack, as good soldiers do, the men of the Rifle Brigade got out of their trench and went for it. Rifleman Ed McGrath was one of these men. Quote, we hadn't gone very far, and our sector got less and, and our section got less and less until there were only two of us left. I remember calling to the chap I was with. I think we're the only ones who are going to get the, through this lot. Then I got a jolt in my thigh, and my leg came up and hit me in the face. It literally hit me in the face. Down I went. I find the saddest part of this whole affair, where this unit attacked by itself with no support, is not that the men went forward needlessly and were killed and wounded. Unfortunately, casualties happen, even if everything goes off perfect. No, the worst part in my mind is that some of these men actually managed to reach their objective. With no support on either side, some of these men managed to get to the German lines and get a foothold in those lines, but their gains were just not sustainable because they were the only ones there. Joe Hoyles explains, quote, Every officer was wounded or killed. We only had one officer left, Captain Riviere. He went up this German communication trench and found a German machine gun. We killed those poor chaps. We captured one prisoner alive. I sent him back, and just with that, we had the order to retire. It was about 10 o'clock by then, just getting dusk, and after all that massacre, after all the trenches we'd taken, we had to retire. I've always felt that having success snatched from units after they'd went so far to achieve it was worse than just failing outright. Another attack that was happening at the same time was against Mamet's Wood, although I doubt there was really much of a wood left where it once stood due to how much artillery had been dropped on top of it. The 7th and 38th Division would attack against the wood to try and capture it. They were in for a rough time, though, 
But before that started, they had to hang out in the trenches for a while. At times I come across quotes from various officers or men that dig into topics that are not generally discussed. And in this case, there is a soldier who goes into pretty good detail about what he and his unit had in terms of rations right before the attack. Generally, when you see stuff like this, there's just references to maybe the rum ration, but not much else. But Sergeant Albert Perryman of the 11th South Wales Borderers discusses in some detail about what happened after the last ration party before the attack reached the front line. Quote, Rations for the day were issued. For 52 of us, I was allocated one and a half loaves of bread, a piece of boiled bacon weighing about 16 ounces after the some mud had been removed, a small quantity of biscuits, some currants, and sultanas, and a petrol tin of tea. As I displayed the rations, which would not be the last supper, but the last breakfast for some of us, I reminded my lads of the parable of the loaves and the fishes, adding that as I had not the miraculous powers of our Lord Jesus Christ, section commanders should toss up, the winner taking the lot. At this, one of the lads said, Say, Sarge, the buggers don't intend us to die on a full stomach, do they? When the attack did start, the fire was heavy, but not as heavy as it had been on the first day. Here is Sergeant Perryman again on what happened when his unit attacked, and also a glimpse into why officer casualties were almost always much higher proportionally than that for enlisted men. Quote, shrapnel and heavy machine gun fire all around us spelled instant death. My officer was the first to go. I was a yard or so behind him when he fell. He fell without uttering a sound. I examined him and found him dead. I took over, but for a short duration. I became the second casualty. I received multiple wounds in legs, stomach, and hands by shrapnel. Unable to continue, I handed over to the senior NCO, and I managed to crawl back to Happy Valley the best way I could. Progress was slow and painful. The initial attacks against the wood were less than successful, at least what had been initially hoped, which wasn't very much. However, they were renewed on July 10th and these were able to push the Germans back to close to the northern edge of the original wood. Inside the woods by this point, everything was a mass of confusion, with with positions all over the place, often not really attached to each other in any meaningful way. This resulted in several instances of both sides getting all mixed up together, sometimes slipping right through enemy positions, and sometimes finding out only after a firefight that they had been firing on their own. It would take the British a full two days after the July 10th attack to push the Germans fully out of the wood, and the British could finally claim it as their own, although at a high cost. One final attack, and just to put a bit of emphasis on how out of sync all of these affairs were, this one didn't even start on July 7th like the rest, and instead did not get going until the 8th. This would be the attack into the south against Trone Wood which would be executed by the men of the 30th Division of the 13th Corps. Here, even the divisional attacks were horribly disjointed, with random companies being used to attack at random times, never enough to seriously threaten the German positions. Anytime these small groups went forward, they were just wrecked by German artillery and machine gun fire, and any gains that they may claw out were quickly erased, 
Attack after attack went forward and either stopped cold or met by an overwhelming counterattack. This went on for hours and days. The attacks just kept coming. Over the course of a week, the British managed to claw out a few gains, but none were near worth the cost. In Somme, the darkest hour on the Western Front, Peter Hart points that one of the problems that the British commanders were having, right down to the unit level, and he specifically calls out Trone Wood as an example, was that they'd all lost perspective. They'd all tunnel-visioned on specific German positions on their specific areas of the front, and they weren't worrying about anything else like they had to. Sure, this let them make some local gains after a lot of work, and in fact, several of the positions we've discussed today were eventually captured. However, because each attack was consistently sent forward independently, they were at a serious disadvantage, and in warfare, you pay for disadvantages with lives. The British lost 25,000 men in these attacks, half of what they'd lost on July 1st, bringing their total up to 75,000 casualties in just under two weeks. In many ways, that 25,000 number was only as low as it was because they were lucky that the Germans were not quite settled into the front after the shock of the first. But again, these attacks were just a prelude to the next big British push, which would be the attack on July 14th. So this is where I leave you for now. During the next episode, we will discuss those attacks, and I get a chance to talk about cavalry. And if you ask any of the podcast Patreon subscribers, they will tell you that I love to talk about the cavalry.